Listen, I'm excited to tell you this story today. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's legendary. And we're in a series right now where we're looking at some of these legendary stories of men and women in the Bible. And let me just say right at the onset, in case you missed the last couple weeks, the, the reason that we're doing this is not that we would just be in awe of some of these historical characters, though I do think they are incredible. The hope is that you and I would see how God used them how, how they became the instruments of God, and they lived an unforgettable life. My hope and desire is that God would speak to you and to me today out of the, the men and women that we're going to read about, and that God would prompt us to live an unforgettable life. I want you to go with me to the book of Judges again. Last week, we were in Judges chapter 6. Today, I, I want to give you the prequel. We're going to go to Judges chapter 4. Last week, we talked about Gideon's generation. I want to tell you the story that happened before Gideon's generation. And let me just say, though this is a legendary story, I didn't pick it because of its popularity. In fact, I would dare say, last week, I asked the question, how many of you uh, grew up going to Sunday school? And a lot of hands went up. I dare say, you probably never heard this story in Sunday school. And when I tell it to you, you're going to understand why, because you would not want to see this one on the flannel board in Sunday school class. I mean, this would traumatize some small children if you saw this illustrated in the flannel board. Now, don't get nervous. I'll keep it PG in my telling today. I know there's some kids in here. But let me just tell you, this is not a legendary story because it's the most famous story, although it's a great one, and I think you'll never forget it. Judges chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. This is the way many chapters begin in Judges. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. Now, I wish I had time to talk about Ehud. He's not going to be in this sermon series. But Ehud was the judge before. He has an awesome story. He was left-handed. The Bible says he hid a dagger inside of his right thigh, and he approached the king Eglon, who was fat, and he stabbed him with his dagger and pushed the butt of the dagger in the folds of his fat, and he fell over dead. Great story, right? <laughs> Who's ready for lunch? <laughs> Ehud was an awesome champion. But again, here we are, next generation. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 2 says, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim. Verse 3, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, I know I just threw a lot of geography at you, words that are hard to pronounce, names you've never heard before, but let me give you the, the high points. Here's what we know. Sisera is the commander of Jabin's army. All you need to know about them is that's the enemy. That's the enemy. And Sisera has 900 iron chariots. Okay, this is an uh, evolution in modern warfare. Nobody else has this. So for 20 years, they have cruelly oppressed the Israelites. They're in a position of power. For 20 years, they 
have oppressed the Israelites. Now, now what we read in chapter 4 as prose, you can actually read in chapter 5 as poetry. So if you're reading through the Bible, you hear this story in chapter 4, and then the prophetess Deborah begins to sing about it in chapter 5. So when you skip to chapter 5, you start to get some more insight into what Sisera and King Jabin were doing to the people of God. In chapter 5, verse 6, it tells us that, that the Canaanites had a stranglehold on the economy. They blocked all the major uh, roadways. So all the merchants had to travel out and around. We learn in chapter 5 that, that the Israelites were defenseless. We learn at the end of chapter 5 that not only were they uh, brutal to them, but they, they attacked and raped their women. And this went on for 20 years. So after reading all of chapter 5 and, and seeing just how bad it was, it makes me double back to verse 3 that says, and then they cried out to the Lord for help. And it just begs the question, why'd you wait so long? Right? I mean, when is enough enough? And as I read this text, this is the first application I want to make to your life today. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know how long you've been dealing with it. I don't know how fed, you, fed up you are with it yet. But I want to ask you the question today. When is enough enough? I mean, is it 20 years like them? Is it seven years like Gideon's generation? Is it going to be two years? Or, 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 is, today, or is your belly full? I mean, could today be the day that you say, you know what, I, I'm tired of being in the situation I'm in. I'm tired of dealing with the stuff that I'm dealing with. I'm not going to go around this same mountain one more time. This is going to be the day that I'm going to call on the Lord. Amen. This is where Israel's at. They finally got to the place. They had been cruelly oppressed, verse 3 said, and finally they cried out to the Lord for help. Can I just declare to somebody this morning Number one, if you're taking notes, God is a God of rescue. He's a rescuer. He, he delights in coming to your aid. In fact, the Bible says this in Jeremiah 33 and 3. It says, call on the Lord and he will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. But here's the deal. You got to call. You got to call on the Lord. He is more than able, and he is willing and ready, but you have to call on him. And we're going to read this incredible story of God's delivering power in the life of the people of Israel. But before we dive any deeper into it, I need you to understand why we have this story. Maybe you've never thought of this before. Why do we have this incredible, legendary story? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us why in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, here's what he said about the story that we're reading and others like it. He said, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The reason we have this story is so that we will call on the Lord so that we will not go down the same path that they went down. Can I just say, God loves to rescue. He wants to rescue you, but he's going to wait until you call on him. He's going to wait until you've had enough. See, there's three enemies that we're fighting on any given day in any given situation. 
They are Satan. They are sin. And the third one is self. And you could be fighting all three or any one of those three at any given moment. Satan, sin, or self. The Bible says this about Satan. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says he, we need to be vigilant. We need to be sober-minded because the devil, our adversary, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's why we need to be like the 300 that Gideon had. We talked about them last week. Those 300 that refused to just bury their face in the water, but they kept their eyes up. They were vigilant. They were looking for the enemy. Those are the kind of people that God says we're to be because we have an adversary, but we also deal with sin. How many of you know we live in a fallen world today? Come on, I knew I could get an amen on a Sunday morning for that. (laughs) The Bible says that that this, this world is bound up in sin. You don't have to try very hard to find temptation. It will find you. You'll have opportunity after opportunity, day in and day out, to dishonor the Lord, to go uh, in ways that are contrary to the leading of the Lord, because it's the world we live in, and it's easy today to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. But we have a third enemy, and that's self. And i got to be honest, it's a lot easier to blame the devil or to blame the world, right? But James chapter 1 says this. It says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Whether you want to admit it or not, there's something in us that wants sin, In fact, the Bible even says sin is pleasurable for a season. And there's something in us that that just gravitates that way, that fallen, sinful nature that lives in all of us. So regardless of what it is that you're up against or what it is you feel bound by, whether it's your uh, your own self or sin around you in your environment or the devil himself, the reality is this. If you'll call on God, he's willing to rescue you. He's willing to rescue you. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles, right now the eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the earth. He is looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Fully committed. So so when is enough? Enough. When when do we just say, today's the day. I'm going to make a commitment to God. I don't want to to deal with this again. I don't want to go around this same mountain. Here's how the psalmist said it. He said, I waited, Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. Come on, isn't that good news? He heard my cry. He goes on to say, he lifted me up out of the miry pit. He lifted me up out of the clay, out of the mud, out of the mire, and he set my feet on a rock. He gave me a place that I could stand. God wants to give you a place that you can stand today, but you got to call on him. You got to say, hey, you know what? Enough is enough. See, some of you, you don't need a new anointing. You need a new annoyance. Stay with me. It's not, it's not that you need new truth. You don't need God to teach you something. You just need to get fed up with the devil. 
You just need to get to the place like Israel finally got after 20 years where you say enough is enough. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not fighting this same fight. I'm not dealing with these same circumstances. I'm not battling this same addiction. I'm not believing these same lies about me. I'm not going to stay in this same mindset. Today is the day. Enough is enough. You don't need God to anoint you. You just need to get annoyed enough that you'll finally turn around. And point your finger at the devil and put him in his place. Now, some of you didn't know you could do that. I can tell by the way you're looking at me. Did you know the Bible says that we can say to the mountain, be removed? Jesus said, in my name, you'll cast out devils. So it's, it's not who we are. It, it's who lives inside of us. Some of you still don't believe this. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter 16, the Bible says that Paul and Silas and his other companions are ministering, and there's a young girl, she's a slave, and she has the ability to predict the future. The Bible tells us how she got that ability. She's possessed with demons. See, not every fortune teller is making it up. Some of them can do it, and the Bible tells us how. She's full of the devil, and the Bible says she followed them around for several days, and she was accurately prophesying. She was saying, these men are telling people how to be saved. And I, I gotta show you this verse. Here's what it says, Acts chapter 16, verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. See, that's all you needed. He was just dealing with it. He was just tolerating this girl every day. The, the demons are just messing up his ministry, distracting what he's trying to do. Finally, Paul gets so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And in that moment, the spirit left. See, some you just need to get a little bit annoyed today. You need a holy annoyance, okay? Just a holy annoyance that not frustrated with people, but just frustrated with the devil and what he wants to do in your life. Enough is enough. So let's look at this story again, because if the book of Judges tells us anything, it tells us this, that God is a God of rescue. We've met Sisera. He's the commander of the enemy army. But now we're going to meet Deborah. She's a prophet. It says this in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She's an incredible woman of God living in Israel. The Bible says she held court. And that word that's translated out of the Hebrew, held court, is used to describe the way that a magistrate would settle disputes. So she's got a significant role because this is a time where the infrastructure in, in Israel is broken down. They, they don't have things in place. Uh, the government is not established. But here's a woman of God who sits under the palm tree with her namesake, and she governs the people. She gives decisions and direction. Not only that, but she's a prophet. You got to understand, in, in these times, a prophet was not like somebody today that has the gift of prophecy. A prophet in the Old Testament was God's spokesperson. 
They didn't have a Bible like we have. And so when the prophet of God would speak, it was the very word of God to the people in that situation. And so God is using Deborah in this capacity to lead the people of God. And look with me in the next verse. She said, verse 6, she sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. And here's what she said to him. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. Here's the short version. Barak, God has chosen you. Today's the day. You're going to lead the people of God into victory. I need you to get 10,000 men. I need you to go up Mount Tabor. And while you do that, God is going to lead Sisera and all of his 900 chariots to the river basin. Now, I want you to go because today's the day. Go. The Lord commands you. She said very clearly, go. The Lord commands you. Today is the day. He's going to deliver you. But I want you to look at Barak's response. Verse 8. He said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, can I just state the obvious today? Maybe it's not obvious. Maybe some of you might even need to write this down. But let me just tell you, you cannot have conditional obedience to God. That doesn't exist. Conditional obedience is not obedience. It's bargaining. Right? You do this, I'll do that. That's not obedience. That's not you're in charge. That's we're, we're negotiating. You can't negotiate with God today. That's why earlier in the service, we didn't all join in singing, I surrender most things. I surrender almost all of my life. No, it's all or nothing. You can't have conditional obedience with God. But here's Barak, and he says, if you go with me, he's talking to Deborah. Now, why in the world would a man who has 10,000 troops following him look at a woman sitting under a palm tree and say, I'm only going to go to battle if you're willing to go with me? Couple theories on that. Number one, maybe Deborah's a ninja. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there, you know, if you're thinking movie plots, that, you could run with that. You could run with that. Maybe, maybe she's got some fighting skills that we just didn't get in the biblical narrative. I'm not quite sure. I got another theory, though. Maybe, maybe Barak has more confidence in her relationship with God than he does in his own. Maybe he's one of those people who just feels like God can do mighty things, but he's probably going to do them for somebody else. Maybe he's one of those guys that just knows that God is more than able, but he's probably not the one that's going to find God's favor. And so obviously God's favored you, Deborah. If you go with me, maybe it'll work. And can I just say to you today, God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't have favorites. I said this a week ago. I'll say it again. God doesn't call the qualified 
He qualifies the call. You just saw that video earlier of, of missionary Mike Brown who's building this Bible Institute in Honduras and he stood right here a couple years ago and talked about how God called him into the ministry while he was sitting in the bucket of a lift on a job site. And now he's building a Bible Institute in Central America. Why? Because of all of his years in seminary? No. Because of an obedience that said, if God's speaking, I'm listening. But Barak thought, you know, there's some people that God will use, and then there's the rest of us. And can I just be honest with you? That thinking has, has crippled a lot of churches. There are some people that, that feel like if there's going to be a message, it's got to be the pastor that preaches it. If there's going to be somebody to, to pray for the sick, it needs to be the, the preacher. If somebody's going to go visit somebody in the hospital, it needs to be the pastor. Why? Because God's anointing is on them. Can I tell you, we're a church that believes what Ephesians 4 says is true, that God has given the pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We believe that God's spirit empowering us is enough. Doesn't matter what your background or your vocation is or how long you've been serving the Lord, God can use you to do great exploits. Amen. And here's Barak saying, you know, if you'll go with me, I'll go. Maybe, maybe that's why he asked her to go. But I got one more theory. And my last theory is this. Maybe he just didn't believe it. And maybe he's kind of asking if she believes it. Okay, so, so, you know, 20 years now, Sister and his 900 chariots have kept us under his thumb. But today, God says he's going to deliver them. Well, I know you don't want to die, so why don't you come with me? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure you want a front row seat for the victory. Why don't you come with me? And I think maybe he just wasn't really convinced. You know, it's kind of like the guy that, that was a tightrope walker, and he said he was going to try to traverse Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And all the crowd of people came to see him. And he said, how many of you think I can do it? And everybody's like, yeah, you can do it. They're all cheering. And he says, how many of you think I can do it while pushing this wheelbarrow? Yeah, you can do it. You can do it. And then he says, how many of you think I can do it while pushing the wheelbarrow with a person inside? Yeah, do it, do it. Then he says, I need a volunteer. <laughs> and everybody takes a step back. Right? I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, you can do it, you can do it. But what about when God says, get in the barrel? Get in. You trust me. Get in. And I'm going to tell you today, God is looking for someone that would be willing to unconditionally surrender and just say, God, I, I don't have all the steps. I don't have all the steps. But I know what the next step is. See, Barak only knew I'm supposed to take 10,000 troops and I'm supposed to go up Mount Tabor. And, and it didn't look like he could win. If it did, they would have won years ago. What he didn't know was that God had a plan to intervene. And isn't that the way it is sometimes with us? Like we, we look at, we look at the, the blueprints. We look at the financial statement. We, we look at our plans and our ideas and we overlook the unseen hand of God. And the reality is you're going to see in this story that when you factor in the unseen hand of God, this is actually a brilliant military strategy. But we don't always know what God's up to. But Barak had a clear step. He knew what he was supposed to do. Verse 6, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, not me, you, 
Take your 10,000 troops and go up Mount Tabor. And let's look at the story again. Verse 9. Here's Deborah's response. She says, certainly, I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And right now he's probably thinking, she is a ninja. (laughs) She said, you're not going to get the glory. You're not going to get the honor. Oh, God's still going to be faithful. But the honor is going to go to a woman. And so Barak and Deborah, they take their 10,000 troops and they go up to Mount Tabor. And God does exactly what he said he was going to do. Look at verse 11, because now we're going to meet one more character in the story. And I think the place in the text where we meet this man is very significant. Otherwise, if it's not significant, it doesn't even make sense. But right here in the middle of the story, verse 11, we read, Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent in the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. And that's all we get about him. It's almost like a a sidebar note, like, hey, I know you're reading this story. You need to know this. You need to know that there's a guy named Heber who purposely moved away from his people who are in relationship with God so that he could live over here. And he's pitched his tent in this area. And that's all we know about him right now. His people were in covenant with God's people. His ancestors were family with Moses. But we also learn later in the text that Heber has an alliance with King Jabin. He has an alliance with the enemy, probably because they have 900 iron chariots. This guy, if I can just explain it this way, he is the Benedict Arnold of the Old Testament. Relationally, he is in covenant with the people of God, but he's got this secret alliance over here. And that's all we learn about him right now. And it's like God inspired the writer to just say, hey, keep your eye on Heber. It's all you need to know right now. Keep your eye on Heber. The very next verse goes on to, to tell us about what happened. But let me just say this about Hebers, because you know them. You've met them. They're, they're the, the path of least resistance people. Heber's the guy who lives by the motto, what's in it for me? Heber is never asking, is it true? He's always asking, is it trending? He's not worried about right, he's worried about popularity. Heber is more concerned with outward appearance than inward integrity. And the Bible says he, he chose to leave his people. Can I just say, that's always a red flag of a person's spiritual condition when they start to leave God's people. I've seen it a hundred times if I've seen it once. People struggle with their faith and and, and they they get off in sin or they get off in in a difficult situation and and then they're gone. One week, then two weeks, then, then a month. What happened? What happened? Heber intentionally left the people of God and he pitched his tent near the enemy. 
You know, that reminds me of Lot. How many of you remember Abraham and Lot? Lot was Abraham's nephew, and he was a lot like Heber. The Bible says this about Lot. It said he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Abraham gave him the first choice. He could live anywhere he wanted. Where, where do you want to live? He pitched his tent toward Sodom. And by Genesis 19, there was so much sin in that community that God said he was going to judge the Sodomites. And the wrath of God was coming, and he sent angels of the Lord to go in and rescue Lot. But by the time we find Lot in Genesis 19, he's not just looking towards the city of Sodom. He's set up in the city gate. He's set up in the, in the center of commerce. And he's a part of that culture. Until finally, at the 11th hour, he realizes God means business. He really is going to judge this city. And he tried to tell his sons-in-law that it's time to get out because the judgment of God is coming. Now, hear this. This is one of the saddest verses in all the word of God. The Bible says that Lot's sons-in-laws laughed. They said, he's joking. In other words, he, he, was so, he was so callous about the things of God. He was so wishy-washy in his faith that when he finally got serious and he tried to save his own family, they didn't take him serious. Can I just say to you today that if we don't hold the word of God in high regard, there's a generation that's coming after us in the American church that's going to laugh when we tell them, hey, God's going to judge sin. They're going to laugh. They're going to think we were joking. That was the reality for Lot. And Heber is a lot like him. He, he's not willing to stand up for his standards. He's not willing to hold on to his convictions. He takes the easy path. And the next verse, verse 12, tells us that someone told Sisera that Barak and the troops had moved to Mount Tabor. Now, it doesn't tell us who that someone is, but I believe that it told us right on the tail end of introducing Heber for no other reason but to communicate that this traitor who has an alliance with King Javan is now his informant. What he doesn't know is God has already said, I'm going to move Sisera and all of his troops to the Kishon River. And so God orchestrates all of this so that now the people of God 10,000 troops are up on the mountain. And from that place, they have a perfect vantage point. And they can see that God is confirming his word. And here come 900 iron chariots. And they're rolling in to the Kishon River. Look with me now at the battle. Verse 14. Things are setting up. Verse 14 of Judges 4 says, Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So what did she see? What could have happened that all of a sudden she would say, hey, this is the moment. Can't you see the Lord is going before you? Well, if you want to know what she saw, you got to jump back over to chapter five because later she started singing about it and we get a little bit more of the story. See, the Kishon River Valley during flood season, it floods out. I mean, it washes over its banks. It's a mess, but it's the dry season right now. And so all those 900 chariots come rolling in on that hard, cracked, dusty clay. 
And they formed their battle lines at the base of the mountain. And here's Deborah and Barak, and they're up on top of the mountain, and they're looking down. And she later writes about it in chapter 5, verse 20, what happened in that moment. Look at it with me. Verse 20 says this. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on my soul, be strong. See, that, that must have been the moment. As they're standing up there watching the, the, the chariots roll in, all of a sudden, peals of thunder and the clouds break open and, and a downpour in the dry season starts pouring down and soon the Kishon River is overflowing its banks and 900 mighty chariots become 900 boat anchors stuck in the mud. Can you imagine this? And all of a sudden, the current, it says it starts washing them away. They're standing up there watching all this happen. And now Deborah's pulling on his coattail saying, hey, can't you see the Lord is going before you? Go. This is the moment. Go. Verse 22 goes on to say, then thundered the horse's hooves. Galloping, galloping go his mighty steeds. And so Barak goes barreling down the mountain and he charges after the enemy. Look at Judges 4, verse 16 with me. It says this, Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Can I just declare to you today that God always has a way? Amen. He always has a way. You might be looking at the one step that God's told you to take, and because you don't know the next 100 things God wants you to do after that, you won't step forward. But if we'll take the step that we know God has given us to take, he'll take the steps that we can. It's like the person that makes a New Year's resolution and says, I'm going to lose 25 pounds. And then three months later, they're still paying a monthly membership to the gym that they've never gone once to, and they still feel like, I need, to, I need to lose 25 pounds. You don't need to lose 25 pounds. You need to be a person that stops eating donuts at the office. Right? You don't need to lose 25 pounds. You need to be the kind of person that gets up early and goes to the gym. Like, just take a step before you start thinking about how many miles you've got to go. And that's what we do with God. We start thinking about all the impossible things, the, the potential things, the, the what could I do for God? And God's going, just take the next step. Just take the next step. And I'll lead you where you can't go. But Barak didn't have that heart. Barak said, if you'll go with me, I'll go. And you're, this story's not over because you remember what Deborah told him. Oh, I'll go with you. But the honor is going to go to a woman. So there's one more character that we got to meet in this story. Her name's Jael. Here's what it says in verse 17. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. You remember that guy? Old Benedict Arnold? Here's his wife. He fled on foot to her tent because there was an alliance between Jabin and the family of Heber the Kenite. Can I just say to you today, 
JL is the real legend in this story. She's the real legend in this story. Now, sure, she's stuck in a marriage with a guy who won't follow God and make a, a commitment. But she has to make up her mind, just like every one of us do, regardless of your circumstance. She has to make up her mind, who am I going to serve? Can't blame it on my spouse. Who am I going to serve? Can't blame it on my parents. Who am I going to serve? She's living in a house of compromise, and she has a decision to make, just like every one of us. Who am I going to serve with my life? Am I going to just be wishy-washy? Am I going to try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church? Or am I going to believe the promise of God that deliverance is coming? And so here's what we do know about JL. We don't know much, but here's what we know. She's faithful. That's important. Can I just say, a lot can be said for faithfulness. I mean, sure, she's married to a man who can't spell faithful, but she's faithful. She sticks to her convictions. He chose to live his life separate from God's people. He chose to live his life that way. Now, in this day and in this culture, women didn't have much choice. But in her heart, she made her own decision. She was faithful. Can I say to you today, maybe you're living in that situation. Maybe you're the only one in your home that has chosen to honor God. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm saying it's not impossible. Be faithful. Honor God. Honor God with your life. You know what else we know about JL? Not only was she faithful, but she served God with what she had. Can I say to you today, God is not going to ask you to give an account for the things you don't have. But he will ask you to give an account for what you do have. And because women didn't have much say in where they lived or when they moved, that was out of her control. But you know what they did have to do? The women were responsible for the moving. And so every time her husband made a decision, you know what? I don't want to be so close to the people of God. I want to live over there. It was JL's job to, to pull up the tent stakes and roll everything up and pack it up and move a little bit farther and unpack everything and, and drive the tent stakes into the ground and set up camp. And then Heber would say, you know what, I, I, I just, I got this thing I'm working on over here with jabbing and, 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 and I don't want to live this close to the people of God. Let's move again, honey. And so here goes J.L. one more time. She pulls up the tent stakes and she packs up the house and she sets it all up again. And she's out there driving tent stakes into that hard, dusty earth. Why? Just faithful. I mean, I, I'm just doing what I can do. I'm doing what I'm able to do. And in my heart, I'm trusting God. Can you imagine just for a moment what it must have felt like for J.L. year after year, faithfully pitching the tent for a man who was unfaithful to God? Just doing what I can do with what I have. What she didn't know is that all this time, God was preparing her to be the deliverer for Israel. God's raising up a hero, and sometimes God prepares us through our faithfulness in the small things. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to get to talk about David and Goliath. And I can't wait to talk about God's preparation in David's life. But there's probably something in your life, like in JL's, that you're overlooking. Oh, hindsight makes it clear. But right now, there's something that God is asking you to be faithful with. And you do not know how God's going to use it to bring glory to his name. 
The honor that was supposed to be Barak's, it's going to go to Jael. And I'm going to tell you how it happened. The Bible says that Sisera, now his chariot stuck in the mud. The troops are coming down the hill. The Bible says he fled on foot. He's running for his life. When he comes to the tent of Jael, and there she stands, and he goes, oh, good. That's Heber's wife. I'm in with them. And she says, come on in, come on in. You're safe here. You're safe. And so Sisera comes into her house, and the Bible says she covers him up with blankets to hide him. And he says, I'm thirsty. Give me some water. She says, I can do better than that. And she goes, and she opens up a skin of milk and And she gives him some milk to drink. He says, go and stand at the door. And if anybody comes and asks you, is anyone here in the house? You tell them no. And she assures him, listen, you're you're safe here. You're safe here. And so she covers him up again with blankets. And she goes and she stands outside of the door. Now I'm sure Sisera felt pretty safe because in that day and time, men didn't go inside a, a woman's tent and Nobody else knew that he had an alliance with Heber. Bible says that Cicero was exhausted and now he's had some warm milk and a blankie and he falls asleep. The Bible says J.L. goes outside and she pulls up one of those tent pegs and she grabs her hammer and she sneaks back in the house. And the Bible says she put that tent peg right over his temple. And with one felled swoop, she drove that tent peg through his head and into the ground. Legend. I mean, come on. I know that's a little graphic, but that's legendary, right? She, I got to read it to you. I got to read it to you. Look, Look at verse 22. It says this, just then, I love this, God's timing, just then. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera. Here he comes. Hey, have you seen Sisera come by here? I'm looking for him. She goes, oh, yeah. The guy you're looking for, let me show him to you. And she takes him inside his house. It says in verse 22, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her. And there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the Israelites. Now listen, that's a crazy story, I know. And probably one you will soon forget. But I believe that God wants to take a legendary story like that and speak a right now word into our lives. And the first word is a word of commitment. Hear me today. There are some of you, you've just failed to trust God with the next step. you're, You're worried about the forest and you're missing the tree. There's just something that God wants you to do today. And for you, it's not about your salvation. Look, Barak still won the war. And one of these days, you're going to stand before God in victory. You will have lived your life as a believer, and you're going to have your eternal reward in heaven. But the Bible says that there is 
a judgment seat for the saved, not just for the lost. There's a judgment seat for the saved where God is going to distribute crowns of honor for the work that we did. And for some of us, I just wonder if we'll win the victory and not get the honor because we weren't willing to just take the next step, to just trust God. And if God's spoken a word in your life, go. The Lord commands you. Do it today. Don't, don't let another, uh, another cycle of the same pattern happen in your life. When is enough enough? Just get to the place where you say, no, today I'm going to respond to God. I don't know everything he wants me to do, but I'm going to do the thing that he's made clear. I'm going to trust him today. For some of you, you just need to take the next step and trust that God will take the ones you can. For some of us, the challenge today is don't be heaven. Don't live your life with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. You, you can't win playing that way. And for some of us, as I described his life, that's, that's my life. That's who I am. Maybe you think selling in and going all, all out for God is, is too much, but you're overlooking the unseen hand of God in the equation. See, God said to the prophet Eli in 1 Samuel, he said, those who honor me, I'll honor. And so you're worried about how much it's going to cost. You're not factoring the blessing and the favor of God on your life when you commit. You can't outgive God. You can't be more committed to God than he is to you. And so stop factoring in what it's going to cost and recognize the worth of honoring God with your life. Be like JL. Be faithful. E even if nobody else in your house is faithful, even if nobody else where you work honors God, honor God. Even if everybody else is being dishonest and lacks integrity and, and, and just fudges on the numbers and cuts corners and, and doesn't do things right, just be a man, be a woman of integrity. Honor, stay faithful with what you have. Because I can promise you the time is coming when God will give you the opportunity to glorify him with what you have. So I want to pray for you at the end of this service today. I want to pray that God would speak to our hearts on a level of commitment. But before we pray, I want to ask if you'd stand with me all over this room. We sang this song earlier, and I just wonder if there is a willingness in this house to say one more time to God, I surrender all. Not some, not Sunday, not I surrender Sunday. No, I surrender all. And I believe the Holy Spirit is going to put his finger on a place in some of our lives. And he's going to say right now in your heart, I want that. that that's, that's in the all now. I want that. So if you'd be so bold as to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart, to search your life. I wonder if you would just sing this with me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee. All to thee. 
my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Can we say it again? I surrender all. Everything, Lord, everything. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. As we get ready to close this service, I'm going to ask some of our prayer team to come. And I'm going to open these altars for a few moments. Listen, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you in this moment to just... Say enough is enough. I've had, I've had my fill. And Lord, today, I'm ready. I'm ready for salvation. I'm ready for deliverance. I'm ready for a breakthrough. I'm ready for a change in my life. If you need to pray that prayer today, I want to invite you, even while I'm praying, to just step out from where you are and come find one of these men or women. They're going to just pray with you. They're going to just encourage you, put a hand on your shoulder, and lead you in a prayer. Maybe you're here today. And please, church, don't tune out at this moment. Maybe you're here today and your struggle has been that commitment. That commitment to just say, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't have to know all the steps, but I got to take one. I don't want to stand before you having won the victory and lost the crown. Lord, I don't want to be dishonored because I wasn't willing to step out and trust you. And if the Lord's been stirring your heart today, I just want to invite you to take these last few moments. Come and find an altar where you can just seek God and pray and ask Him to move in your life. So these altars are going to be open. I want to invite you to come right now, even as I pray. God, today, we thank you that in this moment, Lord, you're doing something in our hearts and in our lives. God, that you would take a, a legendary and obscure story like JL and a tent peg and you would pierce our hearts on a Sunday morning. And you would speak to us about the men and the women that you've called us to be, about the unforgettable life that you've called us to live. God, in this moment, seal the deal by your Holy Spirit. May we not escape this atmosphere today without hearing a thus saith the Lord in our own hearts. God, speak your word to each and every one of us. God, that we would live our lives in full surrender and in reckless abandon to the plan and the purpose that you have for us. God speaking to you.